Good morning, everyone. My name is David Lefebvre, and I'm an elder here at Oikos. I have not been to seminary. I have no formal training. All I have is the Word of God and my testimony. I think, though, for today, that will suffice. Today, we're going to talk about, as far as God's Word goes, we're going to talk about the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes, and we're going to dump, jump right in because we're going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, I was talking with Doug earlier and uh, about the number of slides we have. I think there's probably 40, uh, or actually more than that. Um, so we're going to go pretty quick. All right, let's start with verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. It's always nice when the author of a book of the Bible tells you who he is right up front. Uh, so King David's son, this is King Solomon. Uh, and he was referred to as the teacher all throughout this book because he is considered one of the wisest human beings to walk the earth, probably second only to Jesus. Uh, his, he wrote the book of Proverbs. And uh, Pastor John Moore recently uh, said to me that you'd do well if all you did in reading Scripture was to read one proverb a day. Uh, it is jam-packed, full of wisdom. King Solomon was an extremely accomplished man. Uh, King David, his father, ruled the world around him by taking them over. Lots of war, lots of bloodshed, and he collected resources. But the Lord told him, you've shed too much blood, you're not going to build my temple. Instead, it's going to be your son, and that was King Solomon. King Solomon, also one of the wealthiest people in history, amassed enough wealth to build an enormous temple and overlay most everything with gold, all right? So, you know, gold, silver, bronze, wood from all over the world. He also developed relationships with nations all around him. King David took over those nations by force. King Solomon did it uh, by uh, what is essentially international relations. People would come from all over the world just to hear a word of wisdom from King Solomon, an extremely accomplished gentleman. He took Jerusalem and solidified it as a world power. He also wrote uh, the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And if anybody ever tells you that, that uh, Christians are a prudish bunch, just read the Song of Solomon uh, because it's the only book in the Bible I know of that at least on the surface is all about sex. So uh, very wise gentleman, King Solomon, uh, also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. As I mentioned, very wise guy. Uh, let's continue on to, to verse two. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north, around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out to sea again. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. I, the teacher, was king of Israel. I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything under the sun, everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom, 
but to madness and folly. I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. And that's what the wisest man on earth said about his wisdom. Cheery fellow, I might add. But that's just chapter one, and maybe he's teeing us up for a really great finish. So let's go on to, ch to chapter two. Starting at verse three, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. Sounds like a great idea. And while seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired beautiful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was really nothing worthwhile anywhere. And then later on in chapter 5, he says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. I had a little bit of experience with this. In 2009, I was an associate at a, a law firm in Kansas City, and I got a phone call because one of the senior partners was out that day, and a new client comes in the door. The, client, the, the senior partner was out, sick, and so I took the call. I landed the business. He got back and said, it's yours. And I'm like, wow, awesome. I landed my first really big account. And I worked really hard for these folks, really hard. So for the next like three months, it's, that's almost everything that I did. I got to the, it got to the point where I was basically running their business for them. And they said, well, this is kind of ridiculous that we're spending all these legal fees when you're running our business anyway. Why don't you just come down to Houston and run our business for us? Why don't, we're going to make you president and you run the company. And I'm like, that's a great idea. So we packed up the family. We met him a couple of times and we, we had dinner and, and Kendra and I prayed about it for sure. Uh, and as we're leaving the dinner one night uh, after meeting him, we're, we're talking about it and we're like, is God really in this? And so I looked over and I said, well, they're Lutheran. And they were. <laughs> that was our sign. Uh, so we packed up the family and we moved to Houston. We sold a house that we had just bought nine months prior and they, they paid me a lot of money. Um, I would say too much and hopefully they won't hear this message, but uh, they were way overpaying me. And things are humming along and then one Thursday, February 14th, 2011, that would be Valentine's Day and it was a Thursday. They said, hi, Dave, 
we can't make payroll tomorrow. And it was all over. That was it. All distraught, I, I went to my pastor. And I'm, I'm crying my eyes out. And Pastor Aaron tells me, well, maybe God's plan is that you be poor for a while. <laughs> and I, I don't know if I said it out loud or if I just thought it in my head, are you kidding me? Uh, and that was God's plan. Uh, it was here one minute, and it was gone the next. And I had a lot tied up in, in that job, in the position. It wasn't as much the money as it was the accomplishment. And it was here one minute and gone the next. So I understand not Solomon's wealth by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I get that. I understand it, and it hurts. All right, well... We all know we're not supposed to love money. That's cool, all right. But what else does Solomon have to say? What about just good old-fashioned hard work, right? I mean, this, this is a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap state, right? What about hard work? All right, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Starting at verse 18, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Growing up, and even still today, my father is one of the most hardworking men I know. He's an introvert. He'll deny this, but it's absolutely true. And if you've met him, you know it. He's an introvert, but he, his profession was as a litigator, an, an attorney that goes to court and fights legal battles. And so there's this, he's an introvert who goes and fights with people all day long for a living. That's what he does. And he'd come home tired as, as well he, he should be. But even worse, he, he had to do all this litigation, all these court battles, being paid by one party but representing another. He always called it the unholy triangle. He did insurance defense. So uh, if somebody injures himself on the trampoline in your, in your yard, it'll go onto your homeowner's insurance, and then the insurance company hires a lawyer to defend you. Well, oftentimes, the lawyer has to take a position pointing the finger back at the insurance company for one reason or another. And yet, that's where his paycheck is coming from. My father is also, is also one of the most ethical people I know. There is no gray with this man. There is black, there is white, there is right, there is wrong, and that's the end of it. And he worked for this insurance company for 24.3 years, working in this unholy triangle, doing his duty to defend his client, which sometimes meant pointing the finger at his own boss, at, his, at, at the one cutting his paychecks. And at 24.3 years, the insurance company said, we're done with you. And I mention that decimal because at 25 years, there was a pension. And 
everything, not everything, because he vested a little bit, but most of what my dad had worked for, all of his hard work, there was no thank you, there was a here's the door, and that was it. And that was hard, really hard for me growing up, because I, I saw this happen, and I wanted him to fight, and he didn't. He didn't, he just, he just took it. All his hard work. Okay, well, what about justice? Surely, I mean, we, we see movies about this, and you know, uh, made-for-TV stories. I mean, we, we, we know about these. What about justice? We think of God as a just God. Surely we find justice here on earth. So maybe Solomon has something positive and uplifting there. Y'all are thinking probably not, and you'd be right. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verse 16, I also noticed that under the sun there is evil in the courtroom. Yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. I said to myself, in due season, God will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds. He's starting to pick himself up here, right? Ultimate justice is with God. Okay. Let's go to chapter 4. This is just a couple of verses later. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living. Most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. He ain't finished yet. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I have thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun, where people have the power to hurt each other. I have seen wicked people buried with honor, yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. This too is meaningless. When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper for they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. Again, he's trying to reassure reassure himself. And this is not all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they are wicked. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. Recently, I had the pleasure of being a guest of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Uh, I spent a day in the Cleveland Correctional Unit, which is about, just about 50 minutes north of town. And I was there to judge a business plan competition. And it was a fantastic thing. It was a fantastic experience. And kind of in the middle of this, there's, there's a lunch. And we had lunch with the inmates. And so, and folks, it really is almost exactly like you see on TV, Orange is the New Black. It absolutely looks like that. The cinder block walls, the, the concrete floors, the sterile environment, everything's one color. Uh, and it absolutely looks like that. And so I was having lunch with another volunteer and an inmate, and we're having a wonderful conversation, just talking about our kids and our families and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so the, the, the volunteer with me across the table asks the inmate, so what are you in for? And he looks at us with kind eyes and says, capital murder. Capital murder. He'd been in, he's been in prison since 1995. 22 years. And here's what he did. He drove a car. He didn't hit anybody with it. He just drove a car. His friend killed a guy. He's spending 22 years in prison, and he didn't pull the trigger. 
His friend killed a guy because his friend's niece came home one day looking really sad. And the guy said, what, what's wrong? And she said, Uncle Billy is touching me and I don't like it. So his friend took care of business. He didn't pull the trigger. He drove the car. And he's spending most of his natural life in prison. And I can rationalize. I've been to law school. I know how the criminal law works. Something, though, doesn't sit right with me. I can't tell you why some folks get the raw end of the deal or the short end of the stick. And Solomon, with all his wisdom, can't either. But I can tell you that in each one of these stories that I just told you, when I let go of the earthly thing I was holding on to, I got to experience a little bit of God's kingdom, and I found more joy in that than in any of those works of my hands. And there was more joy in my heart that came from experiencing the kingdom than anything I could do on this earth. Right after Aaron told me that God's plan was for me to be poor, I spent some time just abiding, spending time listening. I decided to kill all the grass in our yard and start over. I'm just I'm killing time and killing grass, but I'm killing time. And I was, God started then to work on my heart because I was pretty wrapped up in me and there was a lot of me that needed to be peeled away so that he could fill me with him. And while I was working on my yard, I met a homeless guy who changed my life, who's now one of my best friends. And I got to see God work in this man and change his heart not because of anything that I did. I spent a lot of time with him. My family spent a lot of time with him. Others spent a lot of time with him. But it wasn't anything that we did. It was God working in him. And I got to see him give a sermon at Mount Horeb Baptist Church. And oh, to see him preach. It was pretty amazing. I saw a lot of pain in my father's eyes after he was let go. But I also got to see a tangible example of what real, confident faith looks like. And I got to see it in my dad. Through times of struggle, I got to see what faith looks like and its effect on the entire family. That's pretty amazing. And as I'm having lunch with this inmate who just tells me this horrendous story. I look into his eyes and I see a depth of faith and a calmness and a peace that I've never seen on the outside. I saw it in prison. He's not angry. He's looking forward to getting out and he will. But there was a peace I've never seen before. And he recognizes that God's plan is way bigger than his freedom. And that's pretty awesome. 
Now, if the message you're getting today is that everything works out in the end, these are some good stories. But I'd be lying to you. Because there really are things in this world that just don't make any sense. Some things just seem meaningless. And King Solomon understood that. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. This too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. By the way, the the title that the New Living Translation gives to this section is Death Comes to Us All. It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. There is hope only for the living. As they say, it is better to be a live dog than a dead lion. My wife and I recently took a trip to Kansas City. That's where we're from. Uh, Kendra's sister was getting married, and and, uh, Kendra and I met in high school, by the way. And our parents still live only about a mile apart. And so while all the wedding festivities and wedding stress is going on, uh, I had the kids and, and we hung out with my parents for a bit. And probably the easiest thing to do uh, with kids who are two and four, or almost four, um, is to go to a park. And uh, the weather was a little nicer in Kansas City than it was in Houston. And so we went to parks almost every day. And at one of the parks we went to, there's a butterfly garden. And in this butterfly garden, there are little stones kind of scattered all around, and they're about yay big, and there's writing on each one of these stones. And all of them have pretty much the same message, but I found one in particular that my father showed me. Let me back up for just one second. So my sister went to seminary for the deaconess program. Uh, and so she spent some time in St. Louis, and she uh, met a seminary student and married him. His name is Kyle Jones. So my sister Melissa became Melissa Jones, uh, and he graduated from seminary, took a call, and, and they're in Wisconsin right now pastoring a church. So we take this trip to Kansas City, and we go into the park, and my dad shows me this butterfly garden. As I mentioned, there are little stones kind of all around. And like I said, the, the message on them is about the same, and I found one in particular that says, Owen James Jones, born into heaven. At 20-some weeks, my sister and her husband Kyle lost their child. And if that wasn't hard enough, she was still made to go through the experience of delivering Owen. I don't understand why she would be made to do that. I don't understand why these things happen. But I don't have to. And I've said this to my sister, I don't know what to say. But again, I don't have to. Because I believe. 
and I know they believe. At the root of our anger and our worries and our, and our doubts is fear. And at the heart of fear is a lie. Let me repeat that. At the root of our anger and worries and doubts is fear, and at the heart of fear is a lie. God doesn't care about you. You're not good enough. But when I hear those lies, I try to remember the times when I did see God's hand, when I got to experience the kingdom and try to remember the joy that that brought. And I give thanks for it. I pray for patience. We've been through a lot. And I wish I could tell you that every time I prayed a simple prayer that the peace came, it, it didn't. So I pray for patience. I ask for forgiveness for not trusting God, and I believe. Now, your experiences may be different, but the lesson is really the same. So what do you say when your children yell at you, I hate you? I believe. What do you say when the relationship you want to reconcile just will not be restored? I believe. When the incompetent colleague at work gets promoted to be your boss, what do you say? I believe. When you see the crappy hand that kids who enter the foster system are dealt, what do you say? I believe. When your wife abandons you, what do you say? I believe. When your friend betrays you, what do you say? Now you're catching on. When those who are supposed to serve you steal from you instead, what do you say? When you work and work and work and there seems to be no fruit, what do you say? I believe. When everything happening around you seems to suggest that God doesn't love you, whenever everyone around you seems to say that you are not good enough, remember this. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead resides in your heart. And that gives you the power to say, I believe. It gives you the power to stare down the devil and in the face of his lies declare, I believe in God the Father Almighty who made the heavens and the earth and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, my Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And I believe in the Holy Spirit which gives me the power to say to you, demon, you have no power here. Away from me, Satan, and take your lies with you. Now, I want to tell you that in this epic battle of spiritual warfare, there's this peace and calm that immediately follows like a good movie. 
But it just doesn't always happen that way. And the reason is relatively simple. Jesus already fought the epic battle, and he won. We're left to fight the little skirmishes that happen after. And they happen in the daily grind. They happen when we recognize that every day has an end and every day has another beginning. And oftentimes it doesn't look like a fight at all. Most of the time, it looks like letting the devil win. Jesus already won the fight. And sometimes we just have to let the devil win. Because what we're really doing is letting go. Letting go of the wealth, letting go of the hard work, letting go of our sense of justice, letting go of pleasure, letting go of power, whatever it is, letting go of wisdom. It's about letting go and letting God do his thing. Jesus pretty well summed it up. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. If the thing you're holding on to is what you're putting your faith in, how deep that darkness will be. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food to drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in, jar, in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment of your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So do not worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God, and above all else, live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Amen. So today is Father's Day, and I probably should say something to the fathers. Um, there was plenty in there, by the way, if you caught it, but in case you didn't. Uh, so... Just a couple words of advice, and, and then I'll, I'll say a prayer. Fathers, when your children are yelling at you, I don't recommend saying, 
away from me, Satan. (laughs) Husbands, when your wives are getting on your case, I do not recommend saying, away from me, Satan. (laughs) Jesus did it to Peter, but let Jesus do it to Peter. All right. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a good, good Father. Thank you for caring for us, for providing for us, for guiding us, for protecting us, for forgiving us. Forgive us when we don't trust you. Forgive us when we don't have patience. And forgive us when we are not thankful. Remind us each and every day that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides within us. And when the devil lies to us, may we say, with all authority of heaven, away from me, Satan. Thank you for your completed work on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection that proves to us there is new life. And it's in his holy and precious name we pray, amen.